Hello and welcome to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. My name's Charlotte, I'm Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. This month, I spoke to CML patient and Leukemia Care trustee, Darmish Mehta. A diagnosis of cancer was the last thing Darmish expected to receive for his 40th birthday. Yet CML has changed his outlook on life and prompted him into taking on a variety of new challenges, from jumping out a plane, all the way up to the responsibility of being a trustee. Thank you for joining me, Darmish. Hi, hi, Charlotte. Nice to see you. So we're going to sort of talk through your entire leukemia journey, but I think that it makes sense to start sort of right at the beginning, if you don't mind. And I wondered if we could chat a bit about what your life was like pre-diagnosis, if that's okay. Sort of who was in your in your life and what was your job and how old were you, that sort of thing. So, yeah, pre-diagnosis, um, I was involved in the family business. Still am to you know to an extent. Um, life was ridiculously hectic. Um, probably doing too much. Um, I'd had a few minor health issues prior to the diagnosis with blood pressure, and it was. Um, and I was coming up to my fortieth birthday, and I was sort of you know it's it's that big, big um, hill that you've got to get over, and you know you're planning you know thinking what do I want to do in the future and so on. And um, just before my 40th, I'd had a few letters from the doctors chasing an annual health check, which I was sort of not prioritizing. Mm. Um, and then I thought middle of August, I, you know, they keep on sending me letters. I should really respond and, you know, and go and have the health check, um, which I went and had. And a few days later, I got a message from my GP saying, can you please come in? And I thought, well, it's a bit anonymous. Um, you know, I was a bit nervous, but I went to see him and he just said, your white cell counts quite, a li- you know, quite high. Are you, are you feeling okay? And I said, yeah, I'm feeling fine. Um, you know, I played football last night. Uh, the last time I was actually in to see him was about three or four months before when I'd had some gout on my foot and um, a few other issues. And I said, no, I've been in really good health since then, as far as I can tell. Uh, maybe I've had an infection and it's just on its way out. Would you mind retesting my blood? So he retested it, came came back again, even slightly higher. So then he said, I'm a bit puzzled because you look perfectly fine to me, but there's obviously something not quite right. Mm. And I'd seen a kidney specialist um, about six months before because of some side effects of blood pressure medicine. I was on so I thought maybe it's another kidney infection and he referred me to see the specialist whom I went to see and from that point on it sort of spiraled. Yes it got got more and more serious which I'm sure we can come to in a minute but I wanted to ask whether you sort of knew anything about leukemia at all before you you know, went to the GP, were you aware of who was affected or different types or even that it was a cancer? Not everybody knows that. Did you did you know much about I, it? I, I knew leukemia was a cancer and that's about it. Um, my, mm. in my knowledge of leukemia primarily came from watching bad movies about, you know, people protesting. And it was, a, you know, it's a very typical, I think, view of leukemia that a lot, lots of people unfortunately had before, you know, before they were educated, really. I wasn't aware that there was multiple different variations. I I really was completely blind to it all. A little bit naive, you know, in comparison to other cancers that we tend to be more exposed to, or we certainly are more 
educated about. Yeah. Do you think that's sort of due to how common they are, or is it sort? Of, I tend to think it's the symptoms. They're so so non-specific with leukemia. They might be something completely different. Whereas breast cancer, for example, a lump is is quite easy it's to remember. Checking. Yes, it's you know it's checking yourself whether it's breast cancer, testicular cancer, even with prostate and men. You know we know what we have to do. I think most men over the age of 40 certainly get checked regularly. But with leukemia, it was just something that, you know, it really hit me like a ton of bricks. I really didn't know anything about it until diagnosis. And then it was a very, very fast learning curve. Yeah, I'm sure it was. So you ended up at a kidney specialist to start with. Like, I mean, was there a, a conversation about what it could be at the GPs in terms of the white blood count or did they very firmly sort of must be the kidney They problem? thought there must have been some kind of an infection, um, mm. which, you know, which is obviously why the white cell count was high. Um, when I went to see the kidney specialist, he ran some blood tests. And a week later when I went to see him, he said, your kidneys are perfectly fine, but I think you should see a haematologist. And he then referred me to a haematologist um, within the private hospital network who I then saw and at that point he sort of mentioned this is what what it could be but I'm not sure until we do the blood test. Do you think the convoluted if you like way you ended up at the haematologist added to the shock of the diagnosis do you think? Yes I, I, I just did not it's only after diagnosis when I you know reflected on the symptoms and I thought I put that down to just having a really hectic lifestyle mm. um, really stressful lifestyle whether you know especially with things like night sweats which retrospectively thinking I did experience and the fatigue I just put that down to doing too much not not the not not a symptom of uh, leukemia mm. yeah I think that's something we hear from every person we talk to on the podcast, absolutely. So you did have symptoms, you just never thought they were worth seeking help for, is that right? No, I, I don't think I had symptoms for a long period either um, because I'd had my bloods and everything tested about three or four months prior to, to the diagnosis. There was nothing in them in that period and I, I genuinely put it down to that, you know, that health check with the GP for picking it up otherwise who knows I would have carried on ignoring the symptoms yeah. I'm pretty sure about that and it you know it could have got a lot lot worse yeah yeah you were lucky in the that you happened to have one coming along by the sounds of it so you ended up going to a haematologist and was there much longer between seeing the kidney specialist and the haematologist before you found out exactly what was going I on? It, I think it was about a, a, another week between seeing the kidney specialist getting the point with the haematologist. Mm. And then when I saw him, he took the blood test. He, he explained that they've got to be sent off. It'll be a couple of weeks to do the testing. But this is what I think it is. And it's at that point, leukemia first was mentioned. And he said, I think it's CML. He explained to me about the gene mutation, drew it out as as they all tend to do. And um, I went away basically from that appointment thinking what's, you know, what's happening. Um, the problem was, was that haematologist at some point, my blood got lost 
um, from him taking it and sending it to the testing center. So when I went to see him two weeks later, he said, I'm really sorry, somebody should have contacted you, but we, we lost your blood sample somewhere and you should have been asked to come in for another one. And at that point, I'd sort of lost confidence with, with that particular hematologist. I won't mention his name, but um, I'm very lucky that I've got some family members who are really uh, high up in the medical field. And, you know, we tend to go to them with all of our issues. Um, my aunt's a retired senior pathologist. So I spoke to her straight away and just said, this is the situation. And they referred me to a consultant at the Christie Clinic in Manchester. And I've been with him since... Um, and he's, you know, I went to see him, had a bone marrow biopsy a few days later and started treatment again a couple of days after that. So we've talked about what you know about leukaemia. So obviously you've told you have leukaemia, you know it's a cancer, so that, that must have been a shock for you. But what about the chronic part? What, what did that mean to you when you first heard that word? I just, I really didn't know. I, I was, when I first got told, I didn't really tell Anyway, I, I spoke to my wife and kept it to myself. I spoke to my aunt and I had an opportunity to go away for a few days to Portugal. And I, I went on my own as it was already pre-planned. And while I was there for two days, I just did as much research as I could into what CML is, what are, you know, what are the treatment options, what's the survival rate, most importantly, being you know, somebody who's just turned 40 with a young family. And I came away from that weekend having sort of had the headspace to think about it all. And I looked, you know, I looked at the numbers and it said 95% survival rate roughly for five years. And I thought, I like the odd, you know, I like the odd bets. And, you know, those are bets, you know, those are odds I'd take a bet on, certainly. So I sort of came back nervous, but confident that at least I'm going to, you know, hopefully be treated and I'll be part of that 95%. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, CML has really fantastic treatments for the majority of people. But did the idea of it not being possible to cure it sort of immediately, as in the traditional thought of cancer, as in you go in, you have a chemo, hopefully you're then cured, did that upset you at all, or are you...? Not really. It's something... It was something I sort of came to terms with very quickly. Mm because it's what's the next best thing is surviving and surviving and leading a normal life. And, you know, those were the words that kept on resonating with me as normal life as possible. You know, obviously you've got to take the tablets and occasionally endure those side effects. But apart from that, it was, you know, it was fine. If it may be able to get cured in a few more years, you know, the TKIs that have come back have already, I, I call them miracle tablets because for people in my position 15 or 20 years ago may not have been quite so lucky. So I, I, I just took the positive out of it rather than look at the negative small that, yes, it's a lifelong condition most probably. And so you, you mentioned how you went from one haematologist to another on, on the recommendation of a family member. Did you... When you have a chronic condition like a leukemia, but even something that isn't cancerous, just a generally a chronic condition, do you think a relationship, a good relationship with a doctor is important given you're probably with them for life? Is, is that something you found really helpful? Yes. 
absolutely. Um, the, the relationship I have with my doctor is almost like a friend. You know, our, our conversations when we meet are probably about five minutes about the condition and 15 minutes about football or something, you know, completely different because it's, you know, let's, okay, let's get the blood results out of the way. And, you know, thank God for about two years or so, I've been completely undetectable. So it's, you know, it's monitoring. I'm happy with that. Um, a big part of that relationship was the clinical nurse specialist. And, you know, she, as a day-to-day liaison, I've had a, two or three of them now, but they've all been absolutely brilliant. And, and I feel very, very fortunate that I am in the situation where I can get that because a couple of the people I've met through the support groups have not been so lucky. You know, there's one gentleman who didn't know that he could request his results and didn't. And they were never explained to him properly and things like that. And I, I just found myself, wow, I tried to help him actually um, get him referred to my doctor and so on. But I just thought that is a real big part of your, you know, your sort of not recovery, but you're maintaining your mental health with it all, having somebody who you trust and who you can rely on. Yeah, because ultimately they're responsible for treating you in a way that lets you get on with the rest of it. So you talk about the football because you know, everything else is going so smoothly, I guess. Yes, yeah, it, it is. I think it's, if you're not confident in your doctor or your doctor's not not helping you maybe in the way that they should, I think it can really affect you because it adds to anxiety and things like that. I'm young enough to probably be able to you know, research things and understand things a lot better than some of the people that I've met in the support groups. But I think that's also why the support groups that Leukemia Care run are so vital because we do give each other tips and help and things like that. Definitely. Um, I wanted to go back briefly to um, to talk a bit more about the treatment um, but then come back to some of the support groups because that's a really important point. But... Um, so this daily treatment that you have, you say you sort of come to terms with it in terms of it at least helps you survive, but do you have significant side effects? Does it affect your day-to-day life quite a lot? It doesn't, it doesn't. It, I think I'm just used to it, to be honest. Um, when I first started on the imatinib, it was probably about two months of fatigue and your body just getting used to it. Um Unfortunately, we had a few bits going on in our lives. My wife's grandmother passed away on the day I got diagnosed. So we had everything thrown at us and it was sort of coming out of that. Your body getting used to the matinib. And I think I started taking treatment in October 2017. And about Christmas time, I was sort of coming out the other end of it, really, um, in terms of just being used to taking that one tablet a day and... um, you know, and just getting on with your life. Having that discipline, obviously, to fast around the tablets and things like that. And it's, at the end of the day, it's no different to a lot, lot of other people, you know. Uh, and again, I, I see myself as very fortunate that all I had to do was just have one tablet a day compared to, you know, chemotherapy or other harsher treatments that other people have had to go through. What about sort of work and things like that? You mentioned, for example, at the beginning that you, you were heavily involved in your family's business. Is that something you still are able to do? I, I am, yes. Um, initially, when I first started taking the tablets, what I did was one day a week or a day and a half a week, I worked from home just to allow my body to rest, really, and recover. 
and I was getting, it was winter, so it's horrible. And it was, you know, dark and you, you mentally, I think you just struggle a little bit more anyway. And, you know, until, until about Christmas, I was working from home one day a week, able to take a nap when I needed one. And I think that that was an important part of it is understand your body a bit more. And those signs that I'd been ignoring before, I was starting to, you know, pay a bit more attention to. And it's it's just a case of just, you know, rest, recover, but also do things, just calm down a little bit, I suppose. Since I got diagnosed, I have found that on certain days I find I'm quite depressed or I can be quite anxious and the leukaemia has affected us with that quite a bit and it impacts on your daily life quite a lot. I found it quite hard to manage at times when I didn't know what my life expectancy was going to be or what was going to happen next. Sarah Jane is just one of the people affected by blood cancer to benefit from our Anne Ashley Counselling Fund. Our grants fund up to six sessions, allowing you to explore the impact of a diagnosis with a professional. To find out more and apply, search Anne Ashley Counselling Fund on our website or call our helpline team on 080 88 010 444. So you do less generally in, in your day-to-day life now? I mean, we're going to talk about your fundraising in a bit. It sounds like you're, you're not, but I mean, has it changed your attitude to life in other ways? Yes. So, um, it, well, it certainly changed my attitude to life. I've taken a little bit of a step back from my main family business and so on. Um, I've got involved in a life sciences business as a non-executive director because I was just overwhelmed by the, you know, by the benefits that we got from, you know, from the developments in the science, you know, to give us this wonderful treatment that I wanted to also try to help other people in, in a field really where I could make a difference. So I mean, I'm involved in a life sciences business. I'm a trustee of leukemia care. So trying to help people, you know, give something back in that way. And so, yeah, it certainly changed my outlook. I suppose balance is a, is a word. I would use to try to do I'm probably doing more but doing it in a more balanced way if, if that makes sense okay <laughs> I think so, so. Um, I compartmentalize things and you know when I'm home I um I shut down to an extent on certain things a bit more attention to the family and things like that yeah yeah absolutely well since you've mentioned your family I wonder how they have coped with your diagnosis so you, you did you have fairly young children at the time of your diagnosis? I had my, at the time of my diagnosis, I think my youngest daughter was 10, 10 or 11 years old. My oldest was uh, 12. So they, they, they were two years apart. And the youngest one was just going for 11 plus exams at the time. And we, we didn't really say anything to them at the time. We just wanted to um, make sure the treatment was working. And I thought, you know, the, I, my, only my wife knew, my brother knew because of work and um, I didn't tell my parents until I knew the treatment was working. I just wanted to have answers to the questions that I knew they'd ask, really. And I told my aunt, obviously, who helped me, um, and just a handful of people, my mother-in-law, who's a retired GP. But that was it. I just wanted to focus on getting the treatment and making sure that I was, you know, part of that 95%. And as soon as I felt confident enough that, yes, I then started to tell people. 
you get on with it, really. And as soon as people know, you try to help them, you try to educate them. But at least I then could answer all those questions. It's interesting you say educate them. So I've, I've heard other people talk about that as a bit of a, a challenge to have to come to terms with yourself and then also help everyone around you come to terms with this diagnosis. Is that something that you also struggled with? I don't think I struggled with it because because I had those few days to come to terms with it myself and understand it. Mm. I think my starting point was a really good point, really. is I started off well. I, I knew what was going to happen, completely understood it, and had every confidence in it. And the only unknown was, is the treatment working, really? And until I was confident of that, that's when I felt ready to speak to people and tell people and just to let them know how I'm doing, really. Um, and then, you know, because people don't know, do you have to have chemotherapy? Is your hair going to fall out? And, you know, all the other things that people naturally um, associate with cancer. And when you explain, no, I'm on these tablets, it's taking them once a day or twice a day, and they seem to be working. You know, my blood levels are getting normal, but I'll be on this for life. And then all of a sudden people, they sort of understand and it goes away. And, you know, at, at the start you get a, a rush of support and then everyone gets back to normal and you, you get back to normal as well, really. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's daft that the side, out of the side effects, I still suffer a little bit from the fatigue. And for some reason, I'm really slow walking up and down stairs. <laughs> I can play football, not a problem. But going up and down stairs is, is I don't know why, it just seems to be my kryptonite. There we go. <laughs> Have you installed a lift at home yet? No, no, I just um, I just tend to annoy one of my daughters if they're trying to get past me on the stairs. You know, why is it taking you so long? <laughs> but, um, that, that, yeah, uh, you know, that's about as bad as it's got for me, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, and I think if you could tell yourself that as someone who first hears the word leukaemia and cancer at the beginning, I'm sure they would find that really reassuring and hopefully someone who's just been diagnosed with CML hears that from yeah. you as well and finds that useful. It, it is genuinely. Um, I've heard the word good cancer bandied about, and I, I don't like that. No. But I, I would just say we're lucky that if we get this, we have got treatment that can control it. Some people obviously suffer side effects more than others. But, um, you know, it's you can carry on as normal. if you. And I think that's also if you allow yourself. I'm quite an active and quite a positive person. And I think um, if if you sit and wallow, sometimes maybe it can be more detrimental to you. Whereas if you're just getting on with life, it's, you know, it sort of stays there in the background and that's it. Yeah, I guess you don't want to let it define you as, as a no. person. No, not, not at all. So we've talked a bit about support groups already, but I wondered at what point in the whole sort of journey from the diagnosis to now, you found leukaemia care and sort of what was it that you were looking for in particular when you reached out to us? I think I was just looking for, initially it was just information on what the side effects are and how how they'll impact you and what support do you get in terms of, um, you know, talking to people and things like that because it's, although I've got a very supportive family, it sometimes helps to talk to people who are going through the exact same thing as you are, really. 
and sometimes people are a bit more experienced than you. And that, that I think that's why I started to go to the support groups. Um, it was just to meet people in that same, you know, in that same position and just, you know, just to talk it out with them and, you know, just hear what they've had, what experiences they've had with medication and not everybody's on the same treatment. So it's just also understanding about that treatment. And how long do you think if you've been going to support groups for now? Well, I've not been to a physical one, obviously, since the lockdown. And some I've missed a few of the virtual ones purely because of the scheduling. I do intend to, you know, attend them, hopefully in person, actually, because I find those sort of a, a lot better than, than a virtual one, I think. When you're seeing people face-to-face and... I think people are just sick of the virtual. I know we're doing this virtually, but, <laughs> you know, um, it's that reassurance when you see people and, you know, they can, they can also see me as well and say, oh, he's doing all right, you know. And I think that that helps. But, yeah, it's I, I intend to stay with the support groups for as long as possible, really. Have you got something different from them over time? So you talked earlier about helping other people. Was there a moment where you suddenly switched into a helper rather than yes. someone to be helped yeah absolutely i think it was on the second or third meeting there was a guy who came and he came and he was just like a rabbit in the headlights and he was a little bit older than me not much older i don't think but he was just in complete shock and he came with his partner and and i just you know i just turned around to him and just said it's it's not as bad as you think it genuinely isn't it's you know as long as the treatment is working take the positives and there was, like I said, the other older gentleman who wasn't getting the support he should have been getting from his doctor and the information and, and you know, just helping those. So, yeah, I think my role has definitely switched from, you know, somebody seeking the support more to somebody who can try to help others. I just remind myself how lucky I am, to be honest, every day. I think the support groups wouldn't work without people like yourself staying beyond the point which you need support because like you've said already the only people who can really offer the yes I know how you feel today are other people in your situation without a doubt and there's also other people who are on their own or you know the situations everybody's situation is different and I think it's understanding why people feel the way they do sometimes because of their personal circumstances or the situation so if if you, if they, if you can help them walk out of those meetings feeling a little bit better or a little bit more confident then that's brilliant. Is there anything else that helps you cope sort of day to day other than sort of what we do here at Leukemia Care? Anything that you mentioned football, is that something that you rely quite heavily on? I, I, I think playing football, like I go to the gym as much as I can, probably not as much in the last four or five weeks, but I've started going again, you know, after the winter blues. <laughs> and um, it's, yeah, it's just keeping active, to be perfectly honest. You know, I, I just, I can't sit still anyway. So if I'm doing something, it's, whether it's something physical or mental, it's just keeping myself occupied, trying to be normal. And that is it. But there are times, that, especially at the weekends, well, I'll, when I'll have like an hour or two nap, and I'll, my family understand that, they know that I'm going to be shattered after a week. And it's just take a time out and then you, you come back and it's fine. And I think, that's the most important thing is is just resting when you need to. That's um, well, one of the things our, our fatigue expert, Dr Anne Johnson, always says when she does webinars or conferences for us. It's 
be kind to yourself and let yourself do these things occasionally you've only got so much energy that you can give when you're when you're experiencing treatment for cancer so i think that's a really good message yeah i know friday evenings used to be going straight out into the pub or something having a few drinks and now it's like coming home and trying to get dinner out the way and i'm just lying in bed watching tv it's it's, it's very different that's mm. about as much as my life's changed in that way maybe it's trying to balance out if i've got social activity making sure that I'm not going to time myself out too much by maybe having a little rest beforehand or or planning the next day so that, you know, I can rest. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is you, you've you um, told your story on a few occasions. So obviously you're talking today, we've got a written version of, of, of your story on, on the website and you also um, spoke at an event we did for MPs in 2020 about spot leukaemia. What drives you to sort of share your experiences so far? I think it's, it's, it's twofold. It's one that, especially within the Asian community, there's a lot of stigma about talking about cancer and your health. And it's, it's changing now, and especially amongst women more than men. But there's so many people who just don't talk about it or you hear a rumour such and such has got it. And that's fine. If they want the privacy, that's perfectly fine but I think an important part of it is also educating and letting people know what to look out for and within that, within our own community my aunt who I mentioned earlier she's she's done a lot of work on educating women with regards to breast cancer and things like that cervical cancer and with men it's again it's I think it's even less talked about I, I know I've had family members who've passed away with prostate cancer and other forms and it's even when they were going through treatment, it wasn't something that you tended to talk about. Whereas I think with my generation, certainly it's, it's nothing to shy away from. It's if you're going through a bad patch, that's fine. But it's also very normal, unfortunately, to have cancer or to have some form of a treatment. And I think that's making people understand that it is unfortunately, it is a normal thing now. So you talk about it and I'd rather people come up to me and ask me a question, then talk about it behind my back. So I've been quite open about that. And I've had um, people ring me up and said, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? And I've been very open. I can tell them as much as I know, which, you know, I, I don't know the sciences of it all, but I can tell people how I'm feeling and how I was diagnosed and what treatment I'm having and, it, and, what, and what to look out for, more importantly. For those of us who aren't part of sort of the Asian community, could you just say a bit more about what it is that you know creates this culture, if you like, of not sharing? Is is it sort of just a cultural norm? Is it? I think it's something that goes probably from generations ago, where maybe somebody thought there was something wrong with you, even though on the vast majority of cases you can't control how you've got cancer or why you've got cancer or you know what's caused it, you know. It may be rarely if you've been exposed to something that's unfortunately affected you or something like that. But on the whole, it's either genetic defect that you've had or that's gone from generation to generation. And it's, I think it was people thought there's something wrong with you or they didn't want, you know, and it's also to do with marriage. Maybe they didn't want people to marry into a family with cancer and things like that. It's, it's, it's a very old fashioned sort of thinking that, it is certainly changing, like I said, with my generation of people. And hopefully in the next generation, it just won't be a thing at all. It's, it's, it's everyone's personal choice, of course, to talk about it. But 
I think it's the most important message is to say that there's nothing wrong with talking about it. Yeah, and I think it's important for campaigns such as ours to bear these things in mind to understand these cultural sensitivities. Otherwise, we will not change anything. We will perhaps cause further further upset. So um, it's really important for people like yourself to to share this and and be seen to be one of those people in the community. I guess. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, we've seen it with the sort of certain communities with the COVID vaccine mm. and the reluctance to take it up and misinformation. And it's, it's some of that similar to cancer, I suppose. Um, whereas education, I think it's a best, is the best option. You can give people, educate them and let them make the decisions. You can't force somebody to take a vaccine, but you can at least let them know that this is what it does or what it doesn't. And with cancer, it's the same thing, you know, with treatments and so on. There's no shame in having chemotherapy and having your hair fall out or something like that. It means you're trying to do something. Absolutely. Thank you for, for offering to help us in this way. It's really important. Another way you've helped us, and I, I do want to talk about this, is your fundraising, mainly because you've done a skydive. And the whole idea of a skydive completely petrified me. So my first question <laughs> is, why a skydive? <laughs> It was it was just something I, I made a promise to myself um, after my diagnosis. I'd try to put something back in by way of fundraising every year. So my my first activity was the cancer research ten thousand steps a day, which I did, and I I did my last ten thousand steps in Las Vegas after my diagnosis. So and then the next thing that came along was the skydive, and I thought it's something I've always wanted to do, and that university. I almost did it and bottled it. And then this time it came around and thought, I am really going to do it. And I'm going to try to raise as much money as possible because I think it's, it's almost like a shock tactic to people. He's going to do something that crazy. We better donate <laughs> and let, let's raise as much money. And it was, the other thing was, I think when I went up in that plane, I was probably the most calm person on there, obviously apart from the pilot and the, and the instructors, because I think when you get told at the age of 40, you've got cancer. For a brief moment, you don't know what your future is. That's petrifying. Jumping out of a plane with somebody who's done it 200 times before and you're just strapped to their back, that's fine. They know what they're doing. And again, like I said, I go back to the odds. The odds was hugely my favour. I, I, I wanted to do it and I wanted to enjoy it. And I, I really did do that. I didn't scream, I didn't shout, I just loved the view and took it all in. I just imagine you sort of serenely floating to the ground. <laughs> it's a lovely thought. Not how you think about other people doing skydives. I genuinely reflect, but a lot of it comes back to that diagnosis and the fear I had for those first week, you know, for that first week or 10 days before treatment and what's going on, what's going to happen. And although the odds are in my favour, just what if I'm not, you know, not quite so lucky. And it's that sort of a yardstick that I used to measure a lot of things in life now. That's really interesting. The other thing um, that you've done an awful lot of is a lot of cycling, and we're talking like really long distances. Is cycling something you were interested in before you were diagnosed, or is it another one of those no. things you're like, oh, I'll do this? <laughs> it was just something that came from the lockdown. Before I started cycling, before the lockdown, I probably hadn't ridden a bike for over 10 years, maybe even 15 years. And um, it was a case of I was um, shielding at home and working from home for the 
the vast majority of you know the lockdown and I was the weather was lovely and I was enjoying going out for walks with my daughters every day and things like that but it got to the point where so many people were out walking it sort of defeated the purpose of doing it to get exercise and keep your distance because you know you were having to walk on roads to avoid people and so on and the gym was shut and I just wanted to do a bit more to just maintain a bit of fitness so I started cycling on my own and a few of my other friends were cycling all on their own again all at different levels and we just thought we're all doing this separately why don't we just go out together one evening or Sunday morning so we started going out one weekday evening a week and Sunday morning you know quite early just to you can socially distance while you're cycling as well I certainly can because I'm quite slow, but um, it was a case of just, you know, you're seeing your friends and you, you can do it whilst observing the rules. So we started doing it. And as the weather improved, we, we really started enjoying it. And we thought, you know, things have been tough for the charity sector. We've all been affected by, you know, cancer in different ways. And a few of us just said, why don't we try to, you know, put something together where we'll do a charity cycle ride We'll earn as much money as we can for charities and, you know, we'll enjoy ourselves. We'll, you know, we'll get fit at the same time. And we sort of put it together, hoping that the lockdown would, would end, which it just about did. We, you know, we, we, I think we scraped it in the end to get to Anglesey. But we, um, yeah, we put together the whole ride. We, I think on the first ride we did, there was about 23, 24 people from all over the country, really. And we rode from Wilmslow to Anglesey over two days. And it, it was tough. I won't, I won't get you wrong. But it was just, um, it was really um, satisfying. I think when I hit the wall, the one thing that got me through was just why I was doing it, really. And I'm, I'm here, I'm lucky, I'm struggling, but I'm riding the bike. I'm not in the hospital with an IV in my hand, being sick in a bucket or something. I think that's what got me through the really tough parts of it. I guess I was going to say, is the Tour de France next? But I mean, is that a bit no. much? <laughs> are you, are you gone off cycling actually, a little bit now? <laughs> no, um, I, I promised my wife. I mean, we did last year we did Wimsow to Tanglesey. Mm. This year we did Newcastle to Edinburgh. Yeah. And um, last year, I think across our various fundraising groups, we did around £40,000. This year we did £80,000. Um, and it was just a phenomenal effort that it really took a lot out of me so I promised my wife I wouldn't touch my bike for a good month after the ride I kept the promise and um, funnily enough Zach the CEO of um, Leukemia Cares emailed me today actually about some possible fundraising activities so watch this spot um, <laughs> they may involve a trip to France ah, I think I can but, guess what um, it is but we'll keep the mystery going for the time being I'm sure we will but yeah no it. it's just something I, I do enjoy actually but I enjoy the part of it that's a physical challenge. I think this year I was the only person riding on a hybrid bike and not an expensive road bike or anything. And I thought that was part of my sort of proving that anyone can do it really. Yeah. And it's, it's certainly something I'd encourage other people to get, get out and do. It doesn't, you, you don't have to be the fastest. You can, but you can get out there and set yourself your own little mental challenges really. Yeah. And thank you for all your work raising all that money. Um, is really, really appreciated. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about was 
how you became a trustee. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say that becoming a trustee is probably the, the next level up in terms of supporting a charity. You're taking on quite a lot of legal responsibility for, for the running of the charity. What made you take that extra step, if you like? What made you interested in that? It was something, um, going back to your question, yeah, about how has your life changed and the outlook on life changed. And it was something I wanted to do anyway in terms of maybe not leukemia care but some kind of charity work anyway with a proper long-term commitment and um, the opportunity came up with leukemia care because I really did benefit from you know the support that they gave especially those you know that first year or so and I you know I just spoke to a few of the other trustees and I thought it'd be nice to have some younger representation as well because um Although the trustees we have are, are fantastic people, we do need to sort of have a revolving board, really, of other people joining as people leave and maybe some fresh injection of ideas or help and strategy. And I just thought I could maybe bring something on that part of it to the table, really, and just just help the charity in, in other ways, not just the fundraising, because it's, it's a much bigger picture, as you know. Um, it's not just the podcasts or the support groups, it's everything behind that and making sure that we do provide those services in the future. Yeah, definitely. Is it important to you that people with lived experience, actual patients and their friends and family have, are at that table? Is that part of the reason why you wanted to join as well? Yes, I think so. Um, there's there's another one or two patients on, on the trustee board and I think it's a good mix of people um, because we have got people who are non-patients who, you know, they bring their own special set of skills in. And I think we bring a viewpoint of what, of, you know, how does a patient feel about things and what does a patient need from the charity? And, you know, how do we benefit ourselves from those services or how would we like to benefit or, you know, it's that aspect from a patient's point of view, really helping you know just helping the charity carry on and i think the most important thing is is the future if we can contribute to that then it's brilliant i was going to say is there something you'd like to see change for cml patients in the next few years is there i mean we, we talked about how we've got these amazing treatments albeit with side effects but is there something that you think is missing that needs more work the only thing i would say is maybe some more support from not within leukemia care but from outside leukemia care maybe from the health service or you know the government or other patient services and um, i think it's been quite apparent throughout the lockdown your emails and your updates about changes in government advice and things have been absolutely invaluable i had an argument with a vaccination center a few weeks ago because they refused to believe Number one, I had CML or that my daughter, because she was underage, but she was entitled to the second jab being in my, you know, being in my household. They, refu- they were initially refusing to give her a second jab. And um, I was, you know, getting quite irate at them, just saying, look on the website, because it's quite clear. Government advice says she's entitled to it. And it was just maybe trying to educate people, really on what CML is, what the effects are, and leukaemia, really, as an umbrella condition, not just CML. It's, 
you know, it's it's we're all in it together, I suppose, as a leukemia patient, where we I think sometimes we feel the awareness of our condition is is it's not out there as much as it is for other other cancers and maybe the government support towards generating that awareness. It's I know we've talked about it um in the patient advocacy uh, meetings and at a board level as well with the trustees. Uh, and I know you guys are campaigning as hard as you can. And hopefully we will get that support. Yeah, there are certainly some myths to be busted out there still. Despite having done a podcast on myth busting and all sorts, there is, there's more work to be done, definitely. I agree. I like to end the podcast on... A bit of a tip so there's loads of sort of tidbits you you've given throughout the podcast i'm sure people find useful but is there one thing that you would have liked to have known when you were first diagnosed that you would like to share as sort of a parting word i would just i think the only tip i could say is not what i'd like to have known is what the message i would tell to other patients or anybody newly diagnosed is it really doesn't have to be the end of the world um stay positive stay active and don't be afraid to get help either. If if you are feeling down or if you are feeling alone, you know, leukemia's cares there and there are other support systems out there, but just don't be afraid to ask really for support. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time, Damesh. It's been great to chat. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline, on 080 88 010 444. See you next month.